0: let's just act like we're actually doing yeah. a show yeah
1: colonization is bad for your health
0: hey lorna here from the survival uh, guide survival
1: guides joel spring you're flat white has a black history.
0: Gentrification is
2: colonisation.
3: All of us have to understand the colonial base. We don't have a choice. We have to understand it in order to survive in the colonial raising that we're under.
2: Yeah, where I'm looking at is very much changing the whole paradigm and framework and making sure that we have people sitting at the top of the table.
3: when we do create art, it is to continue that legacy of knowledge that we've been given, that legacy of resilience and persistence
2: and resistance. It's not necessarily about the fact that we are targets. It's about how we live, work, deal with wearing that target.
3: The presence of my indigeneity is undeniable. Good luck you that we're
1: recording all this. I have
0: fucking nice This is Lorna and- Joel. And we're back for season two.
1: We're back. Back in the studio, Radio Skid Row, Survival Guide season two. How are you going Lorna?
0: I'm, I'm going all right. Um, there's lots to talk about. There's been lots happening. We're back with season two. There's um, so much
1: exciting stuff to bring you. We've really had, had an amazing time. Amazing time wrapping up season one, amazing time moving forward thinking about how we can take this show to the next level, bring for you some more stuff, stuff that we already knew.
0: So being a podcast um, and a radio show about um, gentrification being colonisation and tracking the waves of that colonisation in one of the first places um, that was hit um, then has become a, a, an urban aboriginal community that has been built by aboriginal people themselves after surviving um, generations of colonization and dispersal coming back to you know one of them one of the first points of contact to build a safe space for aboriginal children to grow up in um just really tracking that uh that journey
1: season two is about you know creating and archiving this community um to remind people what the dispersal and dispossession has occurred in this community and how wrong that is and what we want to do is take off of what we sort of started last last season and bring you up to scratch with the ways in which colonisation, gentrification and all of these things play out in your everyday life.
0: So I guess, you know, we was a bit ambitious when we started out. We literally possibly thought that we could stop um, the gentrification that was happening and after investing a lot of work Um, and investing a lot of advocacy, investing a lot of time trying to educate our own community about what was happening. The power doesn't really lie with our own community. And, you know, we knew that. But just kind of wrapping up season one, we've come to that realisation that we need to really just reframe this conversation and just really be reminding everybody about what will be disappearing if this community goes and really tracing the impact this community has had on the rest of Black Australia. And when I say Black Australia, I'm talking about Black Indigenous um, in the continent now known as Australia, because you know, that's a very colonial identifier.
1: The thing of this, the thing of this season is we're gonna be taking you on a step-by-step tour of Redfern and Waterloo through the eyes of two young Aboriginal people who've grown up in this community. We were talking about it and focusing in season one and now we're bringing you with us on this journey to talk about the things from the community that have not only affected us in our lives and Sydney, but Australia as a whole.
0: Yeah, play the intro clip. We took Joel for a walk. The tour that I do is all about owning the narrative, owning the narrative before this community is fully dispersed and colonised and gentrified. So it's even more important for people from this community to own that narrative and control that narrative and to really be telling our stories about the community that we grew up in. What makes this community so great is that we have all these advancements that have been made by our own people for our own people. There's been so many advancements just in this little area. It's all kind of concentrated all around Redfern Street and Turner Lane. That's where we are at the moment, on the corner of Cope Street and Turner Lane. At the front of Kuri Radio, former black theatre site, as well as the site of radio, Redfern, as well as the first meetings for the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Lane Council when it was first established. Black Power was just as much about black arts as it was about black politics.
1: There we go.
0: We'll walk on, Um, walking on. Why is this important? Um, We decided that this was a big part of the story. This was a big part of the narrative that we're trying to trace. This is a big thing that has rippled out to the rest of the communities um, is the whole Aboriginal arts industry sector. The whole kind of conceiving of that really started in places like National Black Theatre and like uh, Radio Redfern. Um, These conversations about positive representation, all these kind of things, was really concentrated to one area because it was the site of so many different projects Um, and, you know, really become a hub. And I guess, you know, it's something that's still missing. It's something that's still missing to this day. Um, So why this is important, I guess, and the reason why this work is so important is mentioning and I guess really addressing and dismantling what the colonial gaze is what exactly what exactly is the colonial gaze
1: Um, and what performing to that colonial gaze does and what this means in this community you know so much of the political movement so much of the political history of Redfern and Waterloo was born out of Performance. It was born out of the arts. It was born out of dance, theatre, the theatre company, the way in which the the first play that was ever played was ever performed at the theatre company, the Cake Man. Lorna, can you tell us a bit more about?
0: So the cake, the Cake Man, um, the cake Man was a, was the first serious play to be produced at the centre, um, the National Black Theatre um, Centre, which was the site of QRI Radio. Um, which was the place that we were standing at there. Um, we, it was The Cake Man. The first serious play that was produced at the centre was The Cake Man, written in, seven ni- uh, sorry, The Cake Man, written in 1974 by Robert Merritt from Arambi's Aborigines Reserve in Kiara. Um The play was directed by Bob Mazza. Merritt wrote The Cake Man while he was in jail and the play was then smuggled out of the jail by the prison education officer to the Australian National Playwrights Conference. Catherine Brisbane and her husband, the late Philip Parsons Brisbane, the founders of Currency Press, passed the text on to Bob Mazza in an amazing act of humanitarian aid to the black arts. I find this, you know, all very interesting. um, And the first couple of plays that were produced and written um, and put on by an Aboriginal cast and directed by an Aboriginal director, the stories were based on, or the stories were set on a rambi mission, um, which is the reserve and the mission that my mother has grown up on. It's also the place that um, you know I have an emotional attachment to, and I often really question that emotional attachment because, in the end, you know, it reminds me a lot of that Stockholm syndrome. And I know that a lot of our own people, my my own people, you know, my own family, they really um, they they react. They react a certain way when I say those things because it really questions that emotional attachment and the fact that we have an emotional attachment to a concentration camp and not country necessarily. Um, you know, sorry to just chuck that right on you, but this is what I think about whenever people are referencing these plays because they know the context that my family comes from by knowing these plays. Exactly.
1: Um, and the, the story of the story of the, the dispossession, the disp- displacement that was seen by the Aboriginal community throughout colonisation, the... not only first wave of, you know, violent, like military encroachment on Aboriginal land, but then the rounding up of Aboriginal people, pushing them into missions. This is a spatial relationship that's being created in this country. And then, you know, a step in the the next chapter of these communities where they are after being alienated from the land that has been turned into farmland or whatever, the Aboriginal community to find work has to move to the city. You know, That's right. the, in, the Industrial Revolution was, was spread over the entirety of the country, the entirety of the globe. And this was this was this expropriation from the land created the communities that we have come from, the communities that exist within the cities like Redfern, like Waterloo.
0: And, you know, it, cr- it creates an interesting kind of um, demographic as well because, you know, Sydney is one place that has. Um, Aboriginal people from all over the country living here and this is you know one of the reasons why that is the way it is I guess is because you know the city for a lot of our people coming from missions it was freedom it was a sense of freedom that they had never experienced before um So this play has been called a poignant fragment of latter-day mythology and a powerful Australian play which traces white men's devastation of blacks over the 200 years to 1974 and that was a quote by Brian Siren who had um, ran a lot of the first workshops that were run in National Black Theatre. You know, they were doing writing, they were doing acting courses, they were also doing self-defence and things like that, you know. It's amazing. Um, It's also the site of the first conversations and meetings uh, that then became the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. Um, So how, you know, I talk about that site in that tour is the same people that had set up the National Black Theatre had also set up... The Aboriginal Community Controlled Organizations, the Aboriginal Legal Service, the Aboriginal Medical Service, as well as Marawina, as well as National Black Theatre, as well as Radio Redfern, as well as the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra, as well as Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. Um, the
1: of it was the epicentre of creation. It was That's a hub. It was a space in which people felt safe because they had the space to talk about the things that were important to them. I think what's an amazing story is the kind of the the story that you've told to me countless times about when the first performance of The Cake Man was at the theater.
0: Um and I guess you know I talk about these things because you, I, I you know growing up in the 90s being a kid in the 90s and living in a time that was direct sort of directly after this time, you know, that exposed me to Seeing Aboriginal plays put on by Aboriginal actors, um, you know, one of the first plays I seen was an Aboriginal adaptation of Shakespeare, and those things have really impacted on me. Those things have really, um, really inspired me. So, you know, I always come back to these, the kind of the kind of work that was coming out of these communities was put on for a black audience. Um, it was
1: accessible.
0: It was accessible, and you know, they talk about how. Um, There was a big line at the front because they couldn't fit everyone in. Um, I'll just read my little excerpt here. Because the play was
1: so... Amazing! The play was so popular. Well, it was
0: it was exciting. It was Mm. put on by a cast that was you know living in Redfern at that time as well. So there was local they were local people acting and telling the story as well as you know there would have been a lot of people connected to Robert Merritt as well. Telling the story
1: that resonated with the exactly the way that I do. It's
0: like oh I know that mission. My family are from that mission. I want to go see what they have to say. You know, Um, so. After initial refusal, Merritt was finally permitted to attend opening night under guard. The cast refused to go on stage until the handcuffs were removed and Lisa Mazza presented him with a cake at the end. The play was a huge huge success with large Koori audiences attending and crowds stretched all the way down Cope Street with people relaying what was said in the theatre to one another and what an important milestone it was for the community. This was the first completely Aboriginal-written, initiated, controlled, full-length professional recognised production put on in Redfern. Imagine
1: that image, like just the idea that... Because there wasn't enough seats in the in the whole theater, that there was people lined up down the street passing on the information like that encapsulates what should be the endeavor, the meaning of accessibility, the 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 beauty of black art like That's right. to resonate it, in a community that it way. It talks
0: to that accessibility as well. You know, our mob want our mob want us all to experience the great things that we experience, and I guess. That is the mechanism that has driven this ripple effect to other communities. You know, a lot of people will have come here and seen these things and thought how great that would have been, how our younger, pe- how our young people in our community need to see these things. Mm. Um,
1: we want to talk more about this, but we also want to just let you guys know that we're planning an event. That's right. We are getting involved in something that we want your help in. We're planning a 107 takeover. So 107 on Red 107 Projects on Redfern Street has kindly let us. Well, kindly, but we have been able to. We've, st- been, talking. Talking.
0: We've, been, We've been talking. We've been negotiating. We've been negotiating a takeover.
1: You know, they've been. You know, it's not a hostile takeover, but it's a takeover nonetheless.
0: Well, that that's the thing is, <clears throat> it's only hostile because it's black hands um, handling that. You know, um, and this is the kind of stuff that we're hoping to unpack. We so, and Jerry Bustock, I just wanted to, sorry, finish. Um, Jerry Bustock tells how during the performance of one scene in which a group is set upon by two white thugs, visitors from Elko Island became, they they tried to climb up onto the stage to offer their assistance, yelling, I'll help your brother and I'll come and save your cousin. That's amazing. Uh, the format, I think, of theatre even is a really interesting thing when it enters Aboriginal communities so because our people have been reenacting and telling stories since time and memorial it's that oral history it know. is so, so you know i find it interesting that these these visitors from Elko island would would have literally seen that scene and made it you know they felt so moved by it that they had to interrupt they had to interrupt another brother boy or you know another black fella being harassed and being accosted by white thugs um which I think just really speaks to that kind of community mm. that, w- that was existing and that was being built at that time. And
1: this is the community that we are now working at trying to archive and relay back onto other members of the community, other people, other black fellows across the nation. In our work in this show, season two, we are gonna be looking at the importance and the resonance of this community and how it has gone to affect the rest of Australia. That's we right. want to celebrate this, and that brings us back to what we we're saying. We want to we want to throw an event at One O Seven Projects so that we want to let our listeners and let everyone else who's a fan of Survival Guide know about. That at the end of May, we're planning an event, a takeover, where we're going to have community come and celebrate what Redfern was, what Redfern continues to be, and to remember what importance this place has.
0: Yeah, and it's it's. It's a great way to just celebrate um, the people that are still there as well. The people that have seen this dispersal, the people that have been dispersed as well. Um, And just really building that case around gentrification being colonization. And if we want to survive this, we need to know how our ancestors survived the first and second and third waves of colonization. So we're back with Survival Guide Season 2. Yo! Talking about the colonial gaze.
1: This episode, yeah, we're going to be talking to you about the colonial gaze. We've spoken to a few people, but first we want to set out the boundaries. What are we talking about, Lorna?
0: The colonial gaze, I guess, is the way that foreign foreigners have viewed Aboriginality. Foreigners have viewed and used Aboriginal bodies as well um, to really kind of dehumanise so that it makes, I guess, the colonial project justifiable. Mm. I guess that, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the colonial gaze exists. Um, And I guess, you know, I thought that it'd be just great to kind of talk about some examples of what the colonial gaze is, what it looks like. Mm. Um, So I guess, you know, a lot of the historical... The historical. There's so uh, many.
1: There's so many different ways in which you know, on arrival, settlers, invaders, knew or did not know what they were seeing. You know, it's the way in which their worldview was so simple that they created an imaginary idea of what our ancestors were here doing. And know? I
0: guess you know that has created a lot of myths and uh, it creates a lot of lies. It has created. Um, mm. This weird narrative that exists that is really pushed by this whole nationalistic sort of thing that's happening at the moment. Just while I mentioned nationalism, um you know, i I was saying to Joel, like this is such an interesting time right now, um, with the whole, you know the white supremacy that is, is is that has existed in this country and is now going out to other countries and and causing a lot of pain and we causing a you. lot of. That's it. We you know? were talking about
1: this in season one, guys, and in the time we've been away, look, look what we were talking about. But
0: this is this is this is really the underbelly of what it is that we are trying to identify, so that our people can survive it. And you know we've got we've got the we've got a. a We've got a political party at the moment advocating um, for, you know, the gun laws to be changed and things like that. And the last time these kind of people had access to guns, you know, they wiped out a large portion of our people, indigenous people, brown, black people um, in this country, you know, so... The whole, pr- the whole premise of the Survival Guide is supposed to be a wake-up call to the rest of you mob, um, also to, you know, white Australia as well. It's like, so look look at what you did. Look at what you continue to do because you refuse to address the lies that everything is, ba- is based on. And I guess that's, you know, that's what the colonial gaze is, is those lies um, that has made it okay to decimate our people, and to further continue to decimate our people.
1: Um, spoken about this before. We brought it up in season one, I'm pretty sure, but I think it's important to kind of re to rehash this idea of the ways in which, you know, on arrival or throughout the kind of 230 years of colonial occupation white settlers either through means of scientific objectivity whatever the fuck that means through imperial logics through violent incursions military and otherwise have used their power their their ideas of, the, of racial hierarchy or their ideas of claiming objects for scientific preservation like mm, what and the they fuck? Even
0: naming you know, naming those things, they ultimately have control over it when they identified it and named it. So, when we think about historical examples of colonial gaze, they, they, those, those kind of examples are the perfect examples. You know, looking back at a lot of the colonial depictions and art that was done in the colony. Um, and when I mean colony in that time, I'm talking about the rocks, I'm talking about literally one neighborhood um, in Sydney, um, ground zero ground zero that's right um you know um another thing another great example is and i've always found this fascinating the way that our animals are depicted in these early um styles of art and recording um the rocks area and recording this this um colony um Mm. this penal colony um
1: And their inability to rationalize what they were looking at, what they were seeing, you know, it clearly shows this flawed logic within their eyes of what they were witnessing when they saw like our ancestors, when they saw what these people were doing. They had so embedded in their own psyche that they were superior, that they used and profited off of the idea that they could name not, not just Aboriginal people in the southeast, not Aboriginal people in the north, but the entire continent. The entire country, two hundred and fifty language groups more, coming together they used that to sell an image of Aboriginal people as primitive as sitting within the missing as the missing link in humanity. well, if,
0: if you was to look at those earlier colonial depictions, you'll see when they first came here they, there was an air of fascination, so you know they, they really they really played on that noble, savage thing, and they depicted a lot of Aboriginal people very similar to the way that Roman Roman Catholic iconography is depicted. Um, you know the what the body shapes, even very very close to a lot of statues and things like that you'd see in ancient Greece. Um, there's even uh, pictures of a family unit moving, and um, the man is holding holding a weapon, but it it is drawn to look like a sword.
1: I believe the the man who drew that drawing, his name was William Blake. And on yeah, on arrival drew these things that look ridiculous. You know, these—it's a mother and a and two children and a father carrying a bundi and a spear, and it looks like a sword. The baby looks like a cherub. Yeah, that's right. The the depictions in which the way that they drew exactly—it's crazy. (laughs) Um. But
0: also, you know, there's there's pictures of, like, kangaroos and they look like dogs standing up on their hind legs. You know, a lot of the begsias and waratahs really look like weird kind of fantasy kind of plants that you would find in stories like Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, like there was this weird kind of um, weird contrast, I guess, in the way that, yeah, it's just...
1: And these things go it's really on. And these issues, these things, these misguided views and viewpoints have gone on to inform much more than just wrongful depictions of Aboriginal people in anthropology or otherwise. These it's these the these created stuff. Um, stereotypes, exactly.
0: Um, and you know the 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 best I, I guess example, a modern day example of it is this whole myth that white people believe that. Aboriginal people get special treatment, and they um, get—they're entitled to a free house, um, a car. um, They're entitled to a Centrelink payment that other people don't get, or they think that it—you get more for um, identifying as Aboriginal um, within that system. Um, There's a whole list of this really kind of unrealistic. Assumptions that people have made that is not based on any kind of fact, and you know, it's interesting that this stuff is allowed to exist. Um,
1: and it plays out day to day, it's this funny, weird, imaginary schism within the national imaginary of white people in this country. You know, the colonial gaze affects even their own better judgment in the way that they want to understand things in the way that they believe the world to be, you know?
0: Yeah, that's interesting too. And we want to
1: talk about how this can be subverted, how other people's yeah, practices.
0: How, how to survive this. How, what are the tools that we could use? What are the the tools that we know work, I guess, with this? Um, and I just wanted to mention as well, the worst possible example of a colonial gaze is a lot of the stories that we hear about profiling by police um you know tj hickey um is dead because of that police profiling um there's a cat there's a huge number of black men and women that ha- that have been deaths in custody have been you know officially recorded as deaths in custody because of the stereotypical viewpoints that white Australia holds. Um,
1: it has real life outcomes and effects that are devastating to our community up until this day and we can track it back mm. to the first arrival.
0: And I guess the, you know, international incursions of that is the whole Trayvon Martin thing as well. You know, that young boy was shot because he was wearing a hoodie um, You know, there's so many examples of this sort of stuff. What happened in Townsville with the two brothers chased to their death? um, You know, all of these things are examples of the colonial gaze at its worst. Colonial gaze. What is it? um, And what is subverting? Is it? What do you do with it? How can you address it? How can you deflect it? I guess. True. As well. Um,
1: Something that we've had to learn to do over the last 230 years through the embodiment of different identities, the embodiment of different ways of moving through this world, through this country, while under colonial occupation. There's many ways in which this has been done and many ways that the image of our communities has been used against us. And it's really important to learn from community and learn from people around us. And I think it's really uh, art forms that can... Re, reinvigorate and reassess um, these colonial ideals about community that is really important to remember and to show to each other.
0: Um, I've just got the subvert definition as well. It says undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. Just for those people out there that, you know, don't hear this language a lot. We hear it because, you know, we're also artists as well. Um, and I guess... I, Aboriginal artists are really manipulating these tools. They really have a great grasp around these concepts and manipulate them, you know, to tell their own narratives. Um, which is why we thought it was a great idea to to talk to some of our faves.
1: Yeah, exactly. We um I visited uh, Tony Albert, Aboriginal artist from up in Queensland. Um, in his studio down here in Sydney he's been living in Sydney for the last five years and I sat down with him and had a chat about his practice about some of the issues that we brought up earlier about how the colonial gaze has not only affected representations of Aboriginal people but also plays out in the day-to-day lives of young Aboriginal community members through police profiling and stereotyping we're going to go ahead and play that interview today play it
2: My name is Tony. I am an artist living and working in Sydney, but my family is actually from Far North Queensland. Cool. So we are in my studio at the Carriage Works. I'm one of ten artists that have studios upstairs at the clothing store. Actually, I had an auntie that lived in Redfern. One of my dad's sisters. She was a nurse for many years. So we did when we did tra- um, travel to Sydney. Sometimes we stayed with her in Redfern as a brisbane boy i guess you could say that's where um you know i did all my schooling went to university um and as i guess an a fairly active member of the brisbane aboriginal community i um through my not only my job at the queensland art gallery um i was also um, participated quite heavily within the musgrave park cultural center which was really the cultural hub and center of brisbane you know red firm was always in conversation or part of conversation i was uh, richard bell's artist assistant for quite a number of years also when you know he speaks quite fondly of years living and working in redfern it is i guess a place and an understanding of another kind of cultural hub within sydney that well within australia i think redfern really resonates with a very strong active political scene and um, so So I can't really pinpoint a memory of Redfern, but I very much remember it always being referenced in some kind of vernacular. The political consciousness for me within the Aboriginal community, I think came about more so in high school kind of years. It's an interesting thing because it's when you are developing your kind of own sense of identity and who you are. You know, we're very well aware of our Aboriginality. Um, it, you know, was just part of life. And there was, you know, there's discussions around the dinner table, you know, ab- about that, about how you deal with certain circumstances or instances that you're going to come up with and you're going to witness as an Aboriginal person. Uh, but for me, the, the that real political grounding came through when I started to see and understand other artists who were working within that political realm. And that was an amazing thing for me because what I was seeing was, um, artwork which was reflective of my own experience, an artwork which I feel reflected who I was as a person, or artwork which I felt, oh my God, I could have done this. It speaks so directly to me. And it was a point in life where I also understood that art actually doesn't have to be a beautiful picture. Art has the power to create change, to tell stories, to you know create a conversation. I think that's where politically, I became very aware of the, the power that art holds you know, within society, within institutions, that you could actually quite powerfully talk about issues in a way, in a forum, that really doesn't, for me, doesn't exist in a lot of other areas. So that was around, in my life, you know, maybe around my my mid-teens. Before that, it's just, I, I feel it's kind of, you know, great, happy memories, yeah. A big part of what I do is a reflection on colonial gaze. I think a big part of my practice stems from a collection of what I call Aboriginalia, which is images of Aboriginal people emblazed upon kind of kitsch objects. And that's a, that's a collection I started as a child. So there's very much been, for me, a very ingrained reference of who and how Aboriginal people should be and should exist through these objects. Again, it was that period of kind of the mid-teens where I started to understand, I guess the more social and political Alignment that Aboriginal people had with these objects, which was very different to my childhood perspective of these objects, which was one coming from incredible love. I love to see um, images of our people emblazed upon these kinds of objects. To the point, I actually thought they were very kind of special or c- celebrity kind of Aboriginal people, because to have your your image on a tea towel or a plate or a cup. I thought, wow, that's kind of really, really special. The sinister undertones didn't come to much later um, in my life and understanding of how poisonous those images can be or how we were reflected in society to meet a visual standard. We're still talking about a period of time where Aboriginal people were meant to be seen and not heard, and that is um, one of the big, I guess, issues that I look at within my work is this visual iconography and how venomous that has kind of been on us as People And that's why I use a lot of those images, because people understand them, people know them, people are very well aware they had those objects, or someone in their family had those objects, and they've seen them, and they know and understand that that is how a large percentage of society related to Aboriginal people was through these objects. So I feel they're a very powerful tool in expressing uh, the messages that I do within my work. The institutional gaze is, for me, kind of an easy yet difficult situation or a kind of double-edged sword because I, of course, worked within the institution for eight years. I was with the Queensland Art Gallery, which was an incredibly phenomenal opportunity and a chance, to, I, I think, to understand the workings of something from the inside. Uh, you have a little more, I guess, a gentler approach to examining it from the outside now. But, you know, at the end of the day, these are institutions that were made by white people for white people. Now, there is a significant change within the way in which institutions work now, which is great, it is for the better. It is about represent, and I'm a big believer in the institutions. Like, I love art, um, you know, so much. And I think that we as Aboriginal people um, or anyone within society have to understand that the um, these institutions should be viewed and looked at as extensions of our own living room walls. We own all that work that's in there. We have a right to critique it. We have a right to also be within those spaces. It's just for such a long time that it has excluded us, you know. But uh, you know, I am a really big fan of you know creating collections and 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 being you know, feeling like you are part of that. But my role, you know, when it was within the the institution was, I mean, it went, to very early steps of just even making the community feel comfortable within the institution, making sure that they were where it existed. How do you get in? Do you have to pay? Do you have to wear a certain type of clothing? All this sounds really kind of crazy, but it is how, you know, I remember, that's how I thought. I didn't go to an institution until I was uh, a young adult. Um, they just were not accessible um, to us as people. So, you know, there there are big changes now. You know, and there still is a, a long way to go. But that um, that area that sits kind of within the two very different understandings of life and culture is kind of narrowing, and you know that's that's a, a good thing. So I think there are still a lot of problems that are being addressed, and I think one of the big ones is that of Aboriginal people actually sitting at that that table of of decision making it is um, and changing the whole canon and framework it's very easy just to do an aboriginal show and tick a box and say we've done that but what i'm talking about as an artist and i think we're talking about is a community is actually changing that whole framework where aboriginal art and culture sits within an institution and it's not just in one area of an institution either it's across the whole platform of the institution it's like we're staffing aboriginal staff It's not about saying, well, this is, um, you're an Aboriginal curator. It should be Aboriginal people actually across the board in all areas of the institution. You know, this is a thing that, of course, will take time. However, these are questions and understanding we've been having for an even longer time like um it's 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 taking a long time to catch up and our voice is still silenced and yeah where i'm looking at is very much changing the whole paradigm and framework and making sure that we have people sitting at the top of the table So, brothers, which has been a kind of ongoing work for me. I mean, it was very much part of a series, but it, it pops up and creeps in at other elements because of the way that I do work. Actually, stemmed from me moving to Sydney, and I was I was situated down at Art Space at Woolloomooloo. They've got um, this great residency program there where you actually can work and live. Um, so that was my kind of introduction to to Sydney, and I I, w- I had literally just moved, and an incident happened. Um, in king's cross of kind of police violence and brutality and these young boys were were actually shot in a car it was a really horrific kind of event Um, being so you know having just moved to sydney not only the the kind of shock factor of this this incident I was incredibly inquisitive and interested in how a community like sydney was going to respond to something like this i was very aware of what would happen in brisbane with this kind of thing happening but you know i still felt like much of an outsider here so i guess i was a a silent participant there was you know community rallies and protests and i and i went along you know not only i think first and foremost to show my support for the victims of that incident but I was also, you know, really interested in how a community would respond to something like this. And there was this incredible moment during the protest where young men, friends of the the boys, actually took their shirts off during the protest and they had drawn targets all over their bodies. Which I think, well, which I know is an incredibly profound statement of someone so young. And in a way confusing isn't the right word, but it, it confused me or w- worried me or troubled me that we are in a position within society that children are making these statements. Um, it's not foreign to us. We know exactly what it's like to walk into a shop and be followed around. We know exactly what it's like to be the gaze because of the colour of our skin, because of the features on our face, um, because of the... Red, black, and yellow land rights shirts we have on. It really uh, hit me hard. I think is what I'm trying to say is that when when our kids live, through, understand, and deal with these circumstances in such a poetically powerful way, and that's what I witnessed here, and that's what I really what not only compelled me, but I felt. I needed to be looking at within my work. But interestingly, within the work of Brothers, it's it's not necessarily about the fact that we are targets. It's about how we live, work, deal with wearing that target. It's about not enabling us to just be victims. It's about, well, we are wearing this target. How do I go about my day-to-day life in doing that? i work I, I work very closely with with a lot of members of community and particularly with my own family as well because i really want children from where i come from to know that i followed a path that wasn't necessarily accessible or thought to be accessible but i you know i did that it, it requires you know if you you have to work very very hard but there there are there are possibilities outside an expectation of who we are or how we're perceived to live our life. It's kind of where brothers grew from. There's about a strength, about a power that we all attain within us. So there is shockingly strong or politically potent that work is. There are undertones of this idea of optimism in the face of adversity, which I think is really incredibly important.
1: Welcome back to radius Kid Row, You're listening to episode one of season two of Survival Guide.
0: We've been talking about the colonial gaze, what it looks like, stereotyping, um, police profiling. And I've just mentioned to Joel that it'd just be really good to to just end that conversation with a little Speaking bit of numbers. About,
1: yeah, Tony, off the back of Tony's interview, spoke about a project that he works That he's been working on continually um, since the sort of devastating uh, happenings, the devastating incidents in which young Aboriginal boys were shot in Kings Cross by the police, Um, and we want to talk about what this means uh, to exist in this society, in these worlds with these targets on you, when you understand that you only make, you know, our communities make up three percent of the Australian population, yet the population in prisons twenty eight percent is Aboriginal. You know, how do you go, how do you move through the world when you know this information?
0: Mm, But that's what that colonial gaze stacks up. Um, That's what it looks like. Um, And I just wanted to mention too, those boys were from the Redfern community. Um, And this is how, you know, young people are being treated in the rest of the city Um, that come from the Redfern community as well. There's such a stigma attached, um, which is something that our generation has really had to subvert and divert and attempt to divert and deflect. Um, But, you know, these institutions have been functioning for a very long time in this country. They know, they have enormous amount of information on us, um, I guess, as well. And I just thought it was important to really um, draw out what this colonial gaze does statistically Mm. as well, what it looks like. Um,
1: how it affects us and our communities and what that does, how it plays out day to day, today, you know, like it's something that has been, is left over. It is, it has gone in shaping the attitudes towards what has created racial hierarchies across the globe.
0: Well, that's, that's it. You know, and I just wrote a question, just listening to um, Tony speak um, one, one pearl of wisdom there. Art has the power to create conversations you know, and I guess this is why we chose to talk to our favourite artists.
1: You had a conversation as well. You've interviewed another artist.
0: That's right. I spoke to another Murray artist, um, from a Queensland artist, um, Ancestress, who was a single mother. She was a young mother. Um, you know, she is a m- musician. She's a poet. She's a, an artist, a visual artist as well. Um, she's a carver. She carves wood. Amazing. Um, the 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 work that she does at the moment with her sister called Bimbi Love um and she mentioned a little bit about that but they're working on wearable art um you know check it out the, the stuff that she is doing across different mediums just really is um, just really kind of speaks to a lot of these things um and you know my sister puts her heart and soul in everything she does and it's felt um, and that's what we're looking for in this landscape. That's what we're trying to kind of push through within this colonial gaze and these, you, you know, these dehumanising thought processes, um, that, that are automatically applied to young Aboriginal people, Aboriginal people full stop, um, Aboriginal people, uh, that are poor as well, you know, um because they're, they're physical identifiers and they have been growing up in Sydney. It's not only how you look, but it's how you dress that people can tell where you come from. People can tell where you live. People could tell what status you have in that society. Um, and again, you know, I had a yard to ancestress um, and they're just such, such an amazing um, well of, of knowledge and blackfella knowledge systems and holding on to knowledge and transferring knowledge.
1: That's what's so important. That's what you you are practicing in and what we are trying within your tours and with the things that we're doing here. We're reclaiming knowledge. We're trying to archive a community to be able to communicate to the rest of Australia and the rest of the world the importance of Aboriginal Sydney and Aboriginal Australia. We're going to cut to that interview now with Ancestress and we'll be back with you after that.
3: My name is Ancestress, I'm Birigabawiri and Kungaloo Murray from Central and North Queensland, or what's called that now. I grew up in Brisbane, have a very big solid family and I'm an artist, I'm a musician. The work that I'm doing at the moment with me and my sister's business called bimbi love bimbi b-i-m-b-i-l-o-v-e and bimbi is the word in our language for good our business name is essentially good love i'm also doing an album and it's been a process that's included working with elders to talk about climate change to talk about identity and to interrogate colonialism in
0: a sense. We've been talking about the colonial gaze. We talked a little bit about Redfern Radio and National Black Theatre and arts as a mechanism to put forth these positive representations around identity and around racial stereotypes and navigating through those kind of outsiders' views of Aboriginal people and how out of touch they can be and how Mm. arts is a mechanism to be able to just really slay a lot of myths and put forth our truth. How did you first hear about Redfern?
3: I have, as I said, a very big family. I actually grew up sort of hearing about Redfern and mostly from my nieces. They often talked about Redfern because they grew up down there and they have, like, really strong connections down there. My cousin, who's passed away now, Tiger Bales, he... Set up the radio Redfern down there and I can't remember any specific time that someone told me about Redfern. guess I just grew up in that environment where black politics is talked about all the time throughout my life, but throughout my home, throughout my family's homes and my community. So it's always been there, that knowledge of Redfern and that knowledge of what happened in Redfern more specifically. All of those positive things that happened in redfern that would then change change life for a lot of black fellows. my father was ross watson he started first off with four triple z a little community radio and he had murray hour once a week he then went on to create what was called four triple a 989fm in brisbane and since then there was a name change it's now just called 989fm but it is the same radio station and my cousin come up i think in the 90s after he started Radio Redfern who come up and he was working with God at the station.
0: Thanks for clarifying that because I'm just trying to get my head around the links to this story, just really make that clear because we're just trying to get across how big those ripples that have been started Mm. in Redfern community just with these kind of conversations around positive representation and ensuring that our young people see themselves in in all of their beauty and their blackness and their deadliness.
3: What I will add is that the way that I've heard the story is that my auntie Maureen, Cousin Tiger's mother, she actually traveled to, I think, Alice Springs, where like Karma Radio. And she came back, she was telling everyone we need to start radio. And so I think that was also the beginning of Radio Redfern and as well as the radio up here, you know.
0: I love that you've just brought it back to a black woman because I mentioned Annie Maureen earlier in the show as one of the first participants of the National Black Theatre workshops that they had and there was a lot of great actors and writers that come out of those workshops. Tracing back that link, it's there. Yeah.
3: I think she also started the Aboriginal People's Gallery in Redfern, which was there for a little while, in the 80s.
0: Your dad was also involved in setting up the Murray school, is that right?
3: Yeah, that's correct. Dad, dad was one of the main founders. Um, I think it was also one of my aunties that told him we need a black school. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, I think, one of the main driving forces around there, you know, of course with other people and also... You know, there was other people around as well that helped set up the radio.
0: That's very much what we've been talking about, is that there was a whole generation here in Redfern Mm. and the same people that were involved in land council and the setting up the Aboriginal community-controlled organisations were also involved in setting up the National Black Theatre and all of Mm. these conversations around representation. These issues were just as important to the health and the state, the quality of life that was experienced at that time and I guess the dreams for young people in the future to have a better quality. of life does your work invite subvert or divert the colonial gaze i think it's interesting
3: because you make the work with intention and then maybe it fulfills its purpose and maybe it really doesn't it's hard to sort of tell because you can't view it as if it's new once you've created it but i think what i try to do is i try to invite it in order to divert it so that i can subvert it if that makes sense i want it to be all three i want to invite the colonial gaze so that I can divert it and use it as a means to make people understand, think that by doing that, I subvert it. Because they're all, all these different inviting, diverting and subverting, they're, they're tools. And I think that's the point of art in a way for a lot of our mob, especially a lot of political mob, a lot of mob that have grown up in political communities and had political discussions around it, mm. I think you know when we do create art it is to continue that legacy of knowledge that we've been given that legacy of resilience and persistence and resistance but I think it's important to have all of them sometimes I hear work or I see work and all it does is invite it and to me I think if you're going to invite it then pick it apart if we can invite people in and then give them a look at themselves and a look at what the colonial gaze is and what it means and what it does and how it affects themselves and how it affects others. I think that meaningful. That's good. But I think if we're only inviting it and we don't interrogate it and we don't divert or subvert it, I think that that's comforting it and mm. it's allowing it and it it's missing an opportunity to challenge it. But, but I think art is a means of self-determination. So I think there is some of my work where I don't actually invite the colonial gaze at all. And I think that because of that, sometimes it sort of goes over people's heads a little bit. And that's okay because it's not for them.
0: But, you know, just coming from the barriers and all the adversity to get to this point and being someone that works across mediums as well, Mm. I guess it's not one answer piece or each work is a mechanism for a conversation or if it's a mechanism for something that drives Mm. itself
3: it's always different and i think that's what's exciting about it that's the beauty in in working across platforms because there's so many different stories to tell and there's so many different ways to tell them and every different choice we make as storytellers essentially is it changes the way the work is received and it changes what it does and it changes who it's received by and I think this is that thing of operating on feeling as well it's different than being trained to do things I think for me I know that my feelings and how I feel about certain situations how I'm feeling within myself that always influences influences the work. And so it should. All of us have to understand the colonial gaze. We don't have a choice. We have to understand it in order to survive in the colonial regime that we're under. That's right. And so there is an understanding there. But I think what for me is the most important thing is trying to get people to understand the Murray gaze. Mm. And trying to flip that colonial gaze in a way that I can use it to break it apart. Use it against
0: itself. Being black women and single mothers and the whole list of barriers that we've had to overcome. How performative is indigeneity within your work and what has wow, informed this is such us? This an ch- interesting question. I know, because right? I've
3: never thought about it. I've honestly never thought about it. I've always thought more about how I can use what I'm doing to say something that challenges the narrative about indigeneity. So I feel like that's really interesting because then when you do challenge the narrative about indigeneity, especially in the current political climate, it is, in a sense, performing that indigeneity in itself, which I think it's just like, it's really interesting because I've always used art as a means of self-determination. And also, you know, I have had, in a sense, a very sheltered life. I grew up going to the Murray School in Brisbane, and I just never really had to be around a lot of white people. So I think it becomes really interesting because my identity hasn't been hard for me to understand or hard for me to wear. I make the work that I do because I'm interested in challenging myself to interrogate colonialism but also i'm interested in challenging my mind in how well it can intellectualize culture and how well i can understand the world from a murray perspective and so it's very interesting because then the outcome of that i can see how it would seem performative but i think also there's different ways to see the word performative as Mm. well you know yeah and i don't think that my work is like that i write most things for myself as a way to live in this world, I guess. A lot of like my music stuff, it's very much about self determination. It's very much about trying to understand different aspects of the world and trying to understand what power I have and what place I have power in. I think anything I do, I think because of the way that I am and the, the way that I've grown up, it, it's just such a good question because the way that I am, the way that I grew up, is very grounded in my identity and in my culture and in that Murray gaze, on politics, on relationships, on everything. And so it's just very interesting because yeah. that colonial gaze that just kind of traps you in a box and you're just an angry black woman and you're lazy and you're this and you're that and you're a bad mum because you're five minutes late or whatever, you know. I've never thought about how it looks from a white perspective Mm. from the colonial gaze. I'm not sure what other people would get from it. But I think, yeah, it could be it could be called performative in the sense that I'm not hiding who I am. I, think I am putting my political views front and centre and I am putting my culture and my knowledge of history and politics front and centre, and that is what the work's about. So the presence of my indigeneity is undeniable. However, it's not as if I write it and it comes from nowhere or and i think that's what's interesting though now because the climate we're in you know it's very cool it's very cool to be black and political but and we've talked about this a lot about we were actually both of us making very black very political work when it was not very cool to be black and political
0: yeah often isolated from a lot of other creative spaces because of yeah
3: too political it's not going to work on stage and i just wanted to mention
0: (laughs) as well you know you was the first young black artists that I had seen tying in land management as well and it was just like yeah of course Mm. all of these issues come from the fact that we don't have access to our lands all of these issues that we Mm. face today a lot of people seem to forget that kind of relationship in relation to what's going on now really Mm. kind of aligning all of those messages in one thing and just really reasserting Mm. it as blackfella knowledge keeping and
3: I think it's about interpreting culture as well but I think it's interesting too because I I actually used to just get a bit frustrated (laughs) because My dad really influenced me and his work really influenced me. He wrote a book before he passed in 2013 called The River Story. We're hoping to publish soon. He wrote that because of global warming and he wrote that because of climate change and he wrote that because of colonialism. And not to say that all of those themes are the strongest, not at all, because that's what's interesting about his work as well. As much as he wrote it because of colonialism and because of climate change, it wasn't actually about colonialism. It was more about our mob was about our people and how we live. Again, that's that's one of the ways that those mechanisms have worked with his work. He was doing a PhD as well, that's why he wrote it. And so he had a lot of research obviously, and that's where, you know, I learned a lot of different things about what is happening in the world and to the world because of humans, not necessarily our people, but because of colonialism, because of the human impact in this day and age. I really was very frustrated of the amount of people that did not talk about things that really mattered as far as someone really naming it and, I guess, taking that space to talk about climate change within the arts. It wasn't really happening. Some white fathers were doing it a little bit. I think with the rise of politics, it's become a trend and it's become social currency and it's become popular. Mm -hmm. But then there's because of that, it's made people aware of it which means that it is coming up now in in people's work. And I think that's really good. But I think, again, that's where we actually do need to also make sure that it's not just performative. Don't write about stuff you don't care about. Because I have seen different artists try the political thing, and that was the last political song they did. It's not necessarily something that I think is... It's not like a genre.
0: A lot of the work that I was doing four or five years ago is really palatable right now when it wasn't palatable for yeah. a white audience back then, but today yeah. it seems to be.
3: There's like a lot of invite points and there's a lot of opportunity for people to start to understand what you're saying. And that's why I think it's important that we are, you know, we are young followers. We're still observing mainstream culture and discourse. And we can use these things as a way to draw attention and create understanding around what we're saying. And I think too, and that's what I I spin out on like, you know, even when I watch your old stuff from like 2013, from like earlier, like um, the first poem that I watched of yours, I was just like blown away. But I hadn't even met you, hadn't even worked with you yet. And I was just like, oh my God, she's so deadly. I already knew who he was anyway, but that poem, (laughs) that first, I think it was the disappearing, I was just like, ah, she's just speaking my whole soul out into the world. I look back at that and I think
0: we were so brave. She's given me heaps to bring back to Survival Guide. There's a lot, you know, just even you exploring the Murray worldview, that's just something that we really have to encourage our younger people to do. Um, And just kind of it's stepping away from this pan Aboriginal Thing that kind of yeah. forming and just really placing our own uniqueness and our mm. own worldviews front and centre.
3: Yeah.
0: And I just think that that's invaluable work, especially for our, our children and yeah. you know, younger fellas coming up to see that's that, it. you know, there's there have been people chipping away at this stuff and having these conversations and it's become an obligation to talk about them because mm. nobody else wants to.
3: Yeah, well, it is. It is an obligation that is it and we're very lucky just as i was talking about before how how brave we were to be in certain spaces and saying certain things we're very lucky because we had that strong grounding and that's what allowed us to have that confidence you know and i think that in this current kind of climate that we're in socially and politically it's just such an amazing time you know i'm thinking i'll look around all these little murray kids Curry kids, and all these mob, and just like man these kids are going to be so confident in who they are. They're going to be so strong in their knowledge and their feelings and their view and because it is such a good time to be black as much as it's very hard because we are still being colonized actively. but there's a lot of good things going from of at the moment and a lot of black fellows are very proud to be black at the moment and and a lot of black fellows are very happy to be political whereas 10 15 years ago even 5 years ago it wasn't as cool and there weren't as many people that were as loud and proud and big and black as they are now and that's that's not to pass any judgment on that but that what i'm trying to say is that It's deadly because the kids that are growing up now, they're seeing that it's normal to feel good about being a black fella and to feel good about talking up strong. And so I just think it's a deadly time. There's going to be a lot of, you know, the next generation is going to be stronger, and that's what we want. We want our kids to grow up confident in who they are and... And strong to talk out whenever they need a talk
0: up. That was just such a beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. Biggest thank you to my deadly sister, Ancestress, Murray Artist. Check out online Bimby Love and Ancestress. Got Facebook pages doing lots of things for their mob. So check them out, support them.
1: Wow, such an amazing conversation.
0: And that's like literally the kind of conversations that I have with. Ancestress, who's also my, you know, who's also my best friend. Um, and, your, and your little sister. And my little sister. And your biggest fan. Exactly. It's it's ridiculous how, how much love <laughs> goes on there. Um, but, you know, we've often, like, we joke about this a lot. Um, but the kind of conversations that I have with Ancestress really informs a lot of the work that I do. And I know that it does that for her as well. And, you know, just listening to her talk about growing up and talk about her reference points for Redfern, how, does she, how she heard about the community that I grew up in is really interesting as well. We have very similar viewpoints in that we went to schools where we were surrounded by Aboriginal kids, um, you know. So there's a lot of things that came along with that. There's a lot of things that were kind of, you know, conversations and decisions that were made for us um at very very early stages in our lives you know um which has given us a great a great head start in navigating our own worldviews. and i love that she brought that up because that you know that's been an ongoing conversation i've had with her for the last four or five for as long as i've known her really because um for me i really started exploring the Rajri worldview when i started to facilitate language workshops because everybody wanted me to replicate the work that I had done with writing poetry and Wiradjuri language but not a lot of people understood the journey that you have to go on in order to get there, um, you know. So a lot of the, the end result of that journey is exploring your own worldview and really piecing together... Um, and discarding a lot of the colonial stuff that we've really taken on.
1: Reclaiming knowledge. You know, rec- I
0: spoke a little bit about it in, um, the black, o- uh, black audit Wallung, I think it was in season one, just about how I find it really hard to navigate things like money. I find it really hard to navigate things like entitlements and stuff like that, you know, just because it's been so inaccessible, um, to me, um, You know, so there's all these things that we're trying to work out and we're sorting out every single day. And this is a part of that decolonizing that we talk about. Um, And that, you know, a lot of indigenous and black writers and intellectuals are really talking about because these things are good for us. Exactly. Like, you know, your opening quote in the trailer that i had cut up. um, It's bad for your health. Colonization.
1: It's bad for your health. It's obvious.
0: Exactly. You know, so all these things we really have to sort out in order to function within the society because i don't know if you notice i know that you notice because you're black but you know everybody else needs to start to notice that there is a huge difference there's a huge difference that compa- if, with the way that we function within this society compared to everybody else
1: and it's playing out in so many different ways across not only the state but the whole country you know the the degradation and the toxic treatment you know ecocide the the relationship that settlers have formed with the land that is not a relationship it is an extractive toxic engagement it is literally the killing you know the i was down in i was down in melbourne or nadum last last weekend we were talking with lots of community we had an opportunity to have some fundraisers for Chaparang mob and what they're doing there and defending the trees from all of that awful shit that's going on down in that community. And, you know, there's there's a very different relationship that we need to remember. We need to reclaim this knowledge. We need to do this work and do your family history. Unlock the, 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 the lineages that are, la- are there that this colonial system, this colonial gaze has tried to erase because that's how you're going to unsettle settlement.
0: That's right. And just really, um, you know, owning that narrative that goes as far back as you possibly can, It really dismantles the whole colonial project. It really brings it apart. Um, You know, but that's often the challenge with our young people is how do they access that information? Um, You know, because our parents or uh, my parents generation when they were born they were counted as part of the stock on on the missions and the reserves and things like that you That's know that um, there's people still alive today that you know had this experience yeah um
1: we're gonna cut to a song by ancestress now and then we're gonna follow up another chat we're gonna talk to another deadly black fella from down the south coast mm. who's been working real hard at uncovering and battling against this colonial bullshit to oh, he's, see he's Oh,
0: he's a bit of a black superhero, mm. I think, and I think that that's the best way to frame um, his, what he's doing at the moment and just how important it is to the rest of us um, right now. Exactly.
1: You're, you're listening to Radio Skid Row, 88.9 FM. We'll be back to you after this.
4: forever thinking, seeing blind but never blinking, the gates of heaven keep sinking, seeking find the joke joker winking, society it seems is crinkling, I guess we're all born with an inkling, mental discourse, the force shrinking, I hear the chains forever clinking, I fear my brain's never been sinked in, smell the remains severed and stinking, of what was once fresh water sprinkling, makes me want to kill foxes, toads, cats and rabbits like a sprinkling, spring clean, Cause they impose on what allowed this land to make What we breathe, what we need But it's kinda hard to conceive Cause it's the reason for the thieves But it's more than the greed It's predatory to the land and sea The same reason that I've raised my hand and knee And it was strange when the haze in which we was raised Did abandon me The way I broke free, understand, believe Their chains no longer got a hold on me Yet again, when I look out to see No hope, heart broke when they killed the trees Can't cope, I start to choke I mean it's hard to breathe, I'm gonna need some water like Blue King Brown Cause daddy raised me to be the daughter that daddy bring buildings down And even when I am succeeding still it seems I'm bleeding cause my people are needed no my land. And even when I am succeeding still it seems I'm bleeding cause my people are needed you That which surrounds us is exploitation Hesitation to communicate stagnates a situation Loss of law making sure we would not be complacent And we stand divided by the hate and frustrations Feeling all alone Felt by even racists, ethnics and Asians From living in a way that demands degradation The world's pace inclines with the pressure inflation My girl's facing my mind, I'm trying to keep the time from wasting Look around feeling weak Cause they mistreat creation So dumbed down So I retreat Learning patience No dumb fun now Except with the trees In special places Seems living and dreaming Is the only way To fill the spaces in this hatred And it was strange When the haze In which we was raised Did abandon me The way I broke free Understand, believe me. Their chains No longer got a hold on me Yet again When I look out to see No hope Heart broke When they kill the trees Can't cope I start to choke I mean, it's hard to breathe, I'm gonna need some water Like Blue King Brown, cause Daddy raised me to be the daughter that'd bring buildings down And even when I am succeeding, still it seems I'm bleeding, cause my people are needed. There's no price on my land And even when I am succeeding, still it seems I'm bleeding, cause my people are needed. You cannot buy my soul Also from Benin, 7th century,
0: Fula tribe, I believe
2: Nah I beg your pardon It was taken by
0: British soldiers in Benin, but it's from Wakanda, and it's made out of vibranium.
1: (laughs) Don't trip, I'm gonna take it off your hands for you.
3: These items aren't for sale.
2: How do you think your ancestors got these? You think they paid a fair price? Or did they take it like they took everything else?
0: How do you think you. Welcome back. And we're back with more survival guides season two coming back blacker, deadlier and more on point. Yeah. Um, Really kind of focusing on the national kind of ripple effects that our community has had, you know, in this dispersal, in this redevelopment that's happening here, we really have to build the case of why it's important for this community to to continue to stand. You know, all of these great things have come from this community. Um, But unfortunately, with the whole colonial project, we know that our culture and our land is wanted, but not necessarily us. Um,
1: What is this balance between how these objects, be it cultural production within the media, the way we dress, the way we act, the way we talk?
0: Performative indigeneity. All of
1: these things, or... and relating to our cultural artifacts, the things that matter to us in terms of everyday use as well as ceremonial and embedded knowledge within these systems. why is it that, you know it's so obvious that there is a link between the mistreatment of our people and the praising of these outcomes, the praising of these objects and the praising of these things that come from the community. you know this has been the relationship the extractive one that we talked about just before of the settler-colonial mindset, the settler-colonial society as one is one of extraction, extraction of everything.
0: I, I, I really have trouble um, talking about this because it's so full-on and it just really kind of invokes a blood and bone reaction um, And I guess, you know, this is, uh, this is again, the different sort of, the different worldviews that we have developed being descendants of colonized people in a country where we are the minority in our own country. Our people are still being incarcerated, Um, you know, we're filling jails when we only make up 2% of the national population. you know, our our, our people, even high-profile Aboriginal people, can't escape this racism, you know? And it's often the most talked about stuff is when, you know, footballers are uh, uh, called derogatory uh, racial um, insults and things like that, you know? And this whole country is kind of... has this really weird white tribal kind of... Um, Yeah, it has this really weird white kind of tribal um, kind of appropriation of the way that Indigenous communities function and that competition and, you know, all those kind of things. Like, I guess the colonial gaze, it distorts whatever viewpoint um, there is. It distorts the reality. It distorts the way that people view Indigenous peoples, um, especially on stolen land, you know. And I guess it always has to be brought back to that, is that we're all on stolen land. Um, and what are we doing to, to address that? Um, and one person that we would really like to share our platform with you know, Because we've been putting in this work, we've been creating this platform, we've been creating an audience, but what good is it if we're not sharing that platform with people that are out there in our the communities and really doing this work?
1: At the back end of that ancestral song, we played the scene from Black Panther where Killmonger comes and steals the artifact back from the museum and we're going to...
0: Steals, though? This is the thing. We need to change reclaims, our language. Reclaims we really need to change our language. Recla- the we reclaims
1: the objects back from... The, the theft, the stealers, the one who took it. And we're talking to our own Aboriginal black superhero today, Rodney Kelly. Hey, Rodney, how are you going?
5: I'm good. Um, Welcome
1: to Radio Skid Row, um, the show, Survival Guide, um, hosted by me, Joel Spring.
0: And, and Lorna, Lorna Munro. Um, we've been talking about the colonial gaze. We've been talking about institutional power. We've been talking about... red phone community and about conversations of positive representation coming out of that as a a kind of like a a tool to survive a lot of the police profiling and a lot of the you know stereotypes that exist out there in this country about us as Aboriginal people Um, and I guess you know we've been talking to artists and, and we've gotten to the point where we're talking about reclaiming the narrative and talking about telling our stories. Um, so we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to you about what you're doing.
5: Yeah, no, nah, you know, great opportunity to, uh, you know, let people know uh, what I've been up to.
0: What is it
1: that you've been up to, Rodney? Could you explain to our listeners?
0: So first, can, can we get you to tell us a little bit about who you are and who your mob is? Yeah, um, you know,
5: my name's Rodney Kelly. Uh, you know, my mob's... Are no, Timbery Mob and, and Thomas Mob, no, from Brews uh, all the way down to uh, no, South Coast, Wallaga Lake.
0: Mm. And, and what, what is the work that you've been doing for the last couple of years now, I think?
5: So I've been trying to get back um, artefacts, the artefacts that were taken on the day that cook arrived in, in Botany Bay. Um, you know, they took many spears um, and other items, so know i've been uh, you know talking with museums and and you know trying to get those um spears there's five of five spears um and there's a shield so you know i've been trying to uh work with museums in australia and, and museums overseas in the uk to try and you know hand back these um significant um items back to the people so uh you know, finally, that story from, from 1770 can be told, you know, from, from, from the elders.
0: Yeah, no, it's such an important, it's such an important thing that a lot of, um, you know, Australian historians don't... They're not aware of it, let alone blackfellas. A lot of blackfellas aren't really aware um, that, that, that these shields and these spears have been kept in a glass cabinet on the other side of the world as a trophy that's you know kind of invoking that that war um and the this this, this you know that colonial kind of aggressive nature um uh warmongering really um you yeah, no, that's
5: right you know they've got thousands upon thousands of, of you know our things over there and, and you know they're just they just think they own them, like they have a right to them, uh, you know, and, and they just don't want to give them back. It's just that mentality that they have, you know, that colonial way as, you, you know, they, they invade the place. That means they own everything.
0: And, and like, because I've been to the British Museum. I've seen this shield and uh, it it really just blew me away, the way that it's kept and, um, you know, it's a part of this side kind of with the King's College and you know it's not really on display it's not given um it's not centered it's not given the space that I would feel that it needs within that within that colonial institution with the British Museum um you know the way that we were shown it, there was a treasure hunt um going on with all the school kids and it was just one of them things that you know that they kind of they kind of filled all the kids into to keep them occupied because they don't really want to deal with them. But the shield was one of the things that they had to find and all of those kids could not find it because the way it was kind of just kind of put in this glass cabinet with, you know, a few other different artefacts from all over the country. Um, Whereas, you know, me being someone that's growing up in Redfern Waterloo, growing up with the parents that I have around black politics and, you know, all that sort of stuff... I knew exactly what it was, um and it was you know reading Cook's journals that I had realized that this was a uh, this was an artifact that really kind of cements the black radical sort of thoughts and and black consciousness that exists today, and that our young people really need to see that they really need to be able to um you know, see that artifact and know that that resistance has been in this country since they got here.
5: Yeah, that's right, you know, our young people really got to see that um, shield right in front of them, you know, and, and be able to see it and and feel the power of, of, of what it represents because, yeah, that's what it represents, our resistance, you know, we never let nobody in, That that's our resistance right there and, and you know... That's what what a lot of the kids have got to you know really see that shield for, for what it really is
0: um, and I just wanted to you know the the reason I guess for our listeners I just wanted to explain is that in Cook's journals there's little mention of you know their their view and their recount of it um, which is totally different um, to the to the telling of the story that we had found of you um would you like to just kind of
1: what started this journey for you Yeah, you know? can you start from the original theft
5: yeah you know uh well what started the journey for me was just yeah doing family research and and stuff like that and that's when you know i started going over the journals and stuff and found out that you know 50 spears were taken shield and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's how it pretty much began. And and my first step was the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra. That's that was my first step. I went there first, and everything just went from there on.
0: Um, could I um, could I ask how many times have you been overseas since? How how oh. Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. No, I've been over there five times. So um, I've had meetings with museums, and and uh, I do a lot of lectures. So just trying to get the public involved.
1: I think the first uh, the first time I connected with the story, you were giving a lecture at um, University of Sydney. You were talking about this a few years ago.
5: Yeah. So you know, I've I've just been trying to build that um, build it up and have people talk about these artifacts because. Um, You know, no one was was pretty much talking about them. So, you know, I do lectures all over the UK and and back home here, just, yeah, trying to get people interested in these artefacts. So I've been over there five times. I've done uh, a few protests at the British Museum uh, with another crew over there uh, called BP or Not BP. I also do protests in Cambridge. Um, I'm heading over there um, pretty soon. Uh, this will be my sixth trip, so you know I've been to places like London, Cambridge. I've been to Sweden. I've been to Germany. I've been to Amsterdam. Uh, just uh, yeah, you know, looking for these artifacts and, and trying to trying to bring them home.
0: How receptive are these institutions? How like how do those conversations go down with the museums?
5: Oh, they've got this in their mind that they own the artefacts. So every time I'm talking about, you know, it's time to return them, there's, oh, we could, you know, do a three-year loan um, Mm and we can extend it, you know, keep extending it. Always this loan comes up. So when I say, you know, it's time for them to come home, people need to learn about them and and feel their power and and learn what knowledge they have. And, And people just, these museum people just, oh, you know, uh, they've got to act of parliament against them as well. So um, British Museum, uh, by law, cannot give back any anything to any country. So, you know, that's one thing they hold against um, repatriation of artefacts as well. Uh,
0: Do you know when that happened?
5: Yeah, it's an old one. Like, I think it's back in uh, ooh, early... In around the 1960s, maybe somewhere. I'm not quite sure, but it's, you know, a long time ago. Even even our own a government have an act that prohibits these artefacts from being claimed when they come over here. Wow. So so museums overseas have immunity um, in this country. When they send anything that's stolen, um, we cannot claim them back because here yeah, they have this, Act of Parliament that prohibits any any of our mob from, from, you know, putting a court case in or anything.
0: Wow, it just really fascinates me that the descendants of thieves will do the most to cover their thieving, (laughs) lying um, tracks. Um, And, you know, I I had this conversation with the person that works, um, the Aboriginal person that works at the British Museum about because that was in 2013, I think they had actually loaned it to a stra- the National Museum in Canberra, was it, in 2016? Yeah. And I remember just being really, really upset with how how they just didn't comprehend what they were saying, that they would loan something that they know was stolen in the first place. Yeah. Um You know, it just really fascinates me the type of white psychosis that is going on there on such a large level. And that is going on over here too, you know. Um, like you said, they have thousands of artefacts, but what do they mm-hmm. have on display over there in the British Museum? It's stuff that comes from, you know, the Northern Territory, um, a lot of artefacts that really plays into this pan-Aboriginal thing, you know, that we're all the same or that the only real Aboriginal people come from places that have only been colonised for a short amount of time and things like that. And, you know, I guess your story and, and the work that you're doing really just undercuts all of that, it really undercuts that whole myth that this country was settled peacefully.
5: Yeah, no, and that's why, you know, these artefacts are really important. We need them here um, for 2020, you know, so so we can show all of our mob and and all the non-Indigenous people of Australia, they can come and, you know, see these artefacts and they can learn what happened that day. You know, a man was shot at. You know, we, we didn't throw the first um, spears or anything. We were shot at first. You know, people need to need to learn that. So that's mm. why it's very important um, for these museums to to you know finally start giving giving back our our things. And and I'm finding out you know they've got this relationship between Australian museums and the UK museums. So you know. Our people go over there. They get big grants and stuff, yep. and, and uh, you know, I'm asking these museums to to care for artifacts that come back from from anywhere, from any for any tribes around Australia. But you know, they even even don't even want to um, hold the the spears from that were taken in 1770. They don't even want to put them in their museum at the moment. I mean, you know they are just sitting in storage yeah we're fighting for artifacts you know to come home but our own museums won't stand up and say you know we're going to take any artifact that comes home um you know that's why everywhere i go and every person i talk to i tell them you know we need our own museum we need run by our own people um you know we've got the people they're ready, you know. They can they can start running uh, our, our own museum now, you know. And, and it's just our culture on show. This museum, and it's in Sydney, you know. That's what we really, really need. Something like that, and then th- these other museums would have no choice but, uh, mm. you know, hand back what they've got in their basements, you know. And, and I mean, it's a starting point for all all the, you know, human remains and stuff of our peoples, Mm. you know, overseas. And here that can start going back there and and starting to go back to country. So, you know, everywhere I go, that's my main point is, you know, we really need our own museum Mm. uh, run by our own people so our stories are told the way we want them. Mm. It's amazing that in
0: 2019 we're still asking for that we're still trying to build a case for why that's important um
5: yeah yeah, and it's just so wrong you know we've got to go through so much trouble just for something so simple you know that everybody knows the right thing to do you know it's Mm. the right thing to do so it's so simple
0: and it's it's not like you know they actually value these things either they're just sitting in storage that's kind of the thing that really um just as an extra little stab in the back, you know, in this story, yeah. um, is that they're not actually doing anything with them, but they don't want us to have it because they're aware of the power that it has. Um, and I just yeah, wanted to bring right. it back, um, you know, how you were saying that they fired the first shots. And I guess that's why this artefact that we're speaking, about, uh, speaking of becomes evidence because there is a bullet hole in there that they say was made by tribal warfare.
5: You yeah, know, that's right, you know. The evidence is there that, you know, this isn't no man's land, you know. I've touched, I've felt those artefacts, what were taken in 1770. Uh, mm. I've felt those beers, touched them. So, you know, that's evidence right there of, of you know, us, not not what, ev- you know, the British, um, you know, say that, that it was no man's land and, and that's why they're trying to. Hang on to them as as hard as they can, and and you know keep them over there. So yeah, everybody doesn't learn.
0: Could could you tell tell our listeners what that feels like when you had you know got in, was able to touch these artifacts that were held and made by your ancestors?
5: Yeah, no, nah, it's a feeling that's like just so mixed with with emotions and. and powerfulness, you know, it's just um, sadness for what, you know, had happened back then and, and, oh, it was just, you know, like silence, silence in the room and, and you know, holding these artefacts and it's just just so powerful and, and, yeah, that's why I want, you know, everybody else to, to uh, see what, what power they have and what history they have behind them because, mm. yeah, so I get a chance to um, view the the shield in the British Museum, so the British Museum's let me in before opening uh, on the next trip, and I get to spend like a half an hour um, looking at the shield out of its case.
0: So this is the next so, trip that you're doing?
5: Yeah, that's the next trip I'm doing, so uh, that's going to be you know another powerful moment that... Um, yeah, it's going to happen again. So, yeah, I'm um, on the next trip in April. Um, yeah, I'm going to be spending some time with the Shield.
0: I, f- I find the synchronicity of everything just really beautiful as well. Um, I just read somewhere, um, just trying to do a bit of last-minute research before we went to air, how um, Captain Cook sailed sailed past here in April in 1770. So I find it, you know, a full circle that you're going over there this year in April um, and, you know, getting the chance to be able to hold that, that artefact. And yeah.
5: Yeah, no, it's you know, it's going to be amazing and, and uh, you know, it's good for them to, to give me this chance to uh, be able to, um, you know, view it out of the case, um, not having to go there in front of the case and, touching the glass you know I'm yeah. going to be able to you know really really get a full sense of, of that shield like I did with the five spears and and you know after that I'm going back to the storeroom um, in East London uh, where I've um, ordered some stuff that I want to view um, from the Sydney area um, so I'm going to be going back to the storeroom and and you know, looking at some some of the early stuff
1: that was taken that's that's really, really powerful. i I mean, we've already kind of touched on this that this is so momentous and such an important story and an important
0: it rewrites and the the national, you know yeah. for you um, but
1: for you to you know it's not it's important for the entire nation the, for you to be able to engage with these things. But also, I want to know, you know, how important is reclaiming this for you and your family?
5: Uh, You know, it's very important because, you know, it gives us evidence of our stories and, that you know, our stories passed down about how we were there that day, Um, you know. So having these artefacts there that were taken that day, you know, really, really makes will make us whole again like you know uh we go back to the start when when the first things were taken um and we can start to heal and and stuff like that so you know it's, it's very important um just to, to for the old people to to um see them given back not not on loan you
1: yeah.
5: know giving mm. back
1: it's so it's so it's so amazing to hear your sort of unwavering position on this and you know, it's, you, if you steal something, you just fucking give it back, you know, it's so important. Yeah, yeah
5: no, that's right, you know, I've, I've, uh, I mean, they even go back to saying um, we don't know what the laws were back in 1770, uh, you know, after armed conflict, whether it was legal to take all their belongings or, or it wasn't, they even throw that in, like,
1: that's yeah. ridiculous.
0: But they've re- reparated um, repatriated, um, you know, relics back to Egypt and Africa, and you know, you have all this precedent that is happening. But apparently, these conversations are not extended to our mob stuff and our mob. Um, I, I, yeah, I I know. No, right. I, I don't want to. I don't know. This. I, I want to ask: How hard is it going to be for you to walk away from them? after getting that chance and after banging on these doors for so long?
5: It's getting to the point where, you know, I've tried to be civilised in this campaign. You know, I've never um, done anything, you know, really extreme, but, uh, I mean, it's coming to that point where, uh, you know, there's going to be nothing left to do but you know, go hard and angry, like get angry, I haven't been angry. So, um, you know, three years has gone by. So, you know, I can only take so much. and and Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, we're really behind you. We really want to see this happen. We understand, you know, the impact that this will have on the rest of this country and our people and the next generations coming up and you know all these little black kids that need to know that our people have fought for our land from day one mm. yeah, um, I want right. to ask you what what do you need from us what is it that you need to be able to get over there what is it that you need to be able to get this job done because you know you're you're not someone that applies for these grants right like
5: yeah no I'm so I'm crowdfunded I've just got GoFundMe and and you know I've got people who just donate. And I use that money to go to UK and Sweden, um, you know, to do these lectures, talk in museums. So, um, you know, I'm, I don't get no grants. I'm I'm not a academic or anything. I'm just, you know, a simple black fellow who, who knows um, the right thing to do and, and is willing to, to uh, travel over there. And, and, you know, try and play my part. So, yeah, it's all thanks to just public. So this is just all public um, funded trips, you know. Uh, so the best way um, anyone could help was, um, you know, head over to my GoFundMe page. That's GoFundMe um, slash Repatriate Now. Um, and, you know, people could donate there. And, um, you know, any, any amount helps. Um, you know, sometimes I have to go over there and busk to, uh, eat at night, um, you know, so sometimes it's hard, but, you know, I'll keep going and keep going and, and, you know, got that good support, um, over there and here. So, yeah, if anybody would like to help out, just, you know, try and share the pages, um, I have a page on Facebook, bring home the Gweagle Shield and Spears. Um, You know, people can find out more info on there. Or, yeah, just head to my GoFundMe page, um, you know, GoFundMe slash repatriate now. And, um, you know, everything helps out with with going overseas. So it's just, yeah, the public's um, doing this. I'm not taking no, uh, you know, government money or anything. Um, This is just
0: public yeah um everyone you know all our listeners should be getting behind you um uh, you know just i just want to wish you the best of luck in your travels and really really you know ask ask our old people to protect you in this journey as well but also to ensure you know give you a bit of strength in this journey because i understand how overwhelming it is and how important it is um and you know i really really I really wanted to just kind of explain to people that it's people like you that are our our black superheroes today. It's people like you that are doing this work um, uncelebrated, you know, so we really want to be able to share our platforms and be able to get some of the support that we're experiencing and, you know, get these people to start supporting um, what you're doing um, in that whole conversation about reclaiming knowledge and, and, you know, owning the narrative and owning our own stories and telling our own stories um yeah
5: no thank you eh, very much you know that's that's yeah what it's all about and and um you know i'm i'm only happy to be able to uh do this sort of stuff like um i'm not the kind of person who does that sort of things you know gets up and stands up and talks in front of people but yeah, like you're saying, you know, the old people, they have funny ways
0: of, of uh, doing
5: things, the spirits, you know. And, <laughs> they pick and, your
0: job for you, don't they?
5: Yeah, no, nah,
1: that's right. <laughs> no, nah, but you're doing it as well, you know. Like, that's what's so strong about this is you're, you're listening and you know what's right. And I think you're pushing so hard for this. And this is something that's changing Globally as we speak And it's really important That you're doing this work It's mm. so amazing Thank you so much
0: Yeah Biggest thank you And definitely look forward To the yarn And tea When you come back As well
1: Yeah nah, for sure Well th- thanks a lot Rodney um, You heard it here We're going to be Pushing that GoFundMe It's GoFundMe Slash Repatriate Now um, Thanks um, so much for
0: The Facebook page Was bring back The Gweagle Shield mm-hmm. Was that right?
5: Yeah bring back The Weagle, Shield and Spears. Awesome.
0: And book him when he gets back into the country for some talks. I'm sure that there's there'll be some listeners that want to hear what you have to say after you come back as well.
5: Yeah, no, that'd be good. It's, you know, coming up to that time for the 250th and, and mm-hmm. you know, people got to start listening to the real story.
0: Thank you
1: so much. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Yeah, sweet.
0: Thank you. So, there's... How 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 do you wrap up a conversation like this? Um, and I guess you know you can't you can't wrap up a conversation that has existed for more than two hundred and thirty years.
1: Conversation's not over.
0: The conversation's never over, and you know it always has to shift. It always has to change out of their power. Um, so back to know.
1: reclaiming knowledge, we know it's an important fight, and. All blackfellas need to be doing it. We're doing our bit here on Radio Skid Row, trying to push it here through Survival Guide season two. This has been the first episode. We're gonna move through now to the next part of the tour. Thank you so much for listening.
0: We've got the last part of the tour to play. Um, Wrapping up our first episode, Colonial Gaze. This has been Survival Guide with Lorna and Joel. Thank you. But yeah, so we'll walk on to our next point. Let's keep moving. Keep walking, yay! Let's keep moving. Let's keep walking. Just wanted to mention as well, from this point where we are, just up around the corner is uh, Botany Road. And it was said in Phillips' journals when they were cutting out the ridgelines and extending High Street, oh, yeah. which was then turned into George Street, more towards this way. He, he writes in his journals about a hundred warriors stopping the construction of the Ridgeline and the construction was carried out by convicts so it caused a bit, of, a bit of drama, you know, they had to set a regiment out and all that sort of stuff. There's not much recorded after that, which kind of alludes to they would have been dispersed and when they use words like disperse, they usually talk about dispersing with guns. So there was a hundred warriors here just around the corner, they say on the highest ridgeline, overlooking the rest of um, the harbour. Um, And when you look at the way that this place is and when you come around the TNT buildings it is the highest point. When I get people here I really like to to get people to really try and use their imagination and see this land the way that our people see it. And of course, you know, if you were to stand on that high ridgeline that I'm speaking about, and there was no buildings there you could literally see the harbor you could see where the water meets the land it's a strategic vantage spot which just reinforces the whole area of resistance and the spirit of resistance that has always been here
1: redfern exists kind of and has continued to exist as a point of resistance been the first site of resistance and strategizing of how to deal with white occupation, white settlers, white military, it is embedded within the soil, it's in the trees, it's in the life around here. This space has always been a site of resistance.
0: There's always been Aboriginal people here resisting colonisation, resisting invasion and trying to hold on to what they have and keep a safe space for them. So again, you know, thinking about that ridgeline, looking down at the harbour, these mob here would have seen them ships pull up there and they would have seen the rocks being built up and they would have seen country being cleared, which gives them a really great vantage spot to stop that.
1: That's it. That's it. Thanks for joining us for Episode 1 of Season 2 of Survival Guide.
0: Mm-hmm. looking at the colonial gaze coming full circle you know i just wanted to close and just mention in the first episode of season one i actually made a statement about how we are still unaware of the cultural significance and the historical significance um that our community holds and you know we're still finding that out with with this journey this journey is actually this podcast and the conversations that we're having around this this podcast and pre-production is the mechanism for us to find out and reveal the layers and the layers and even more layers around why our people have been converging in that one spot for a while now not just you know in people that are alive in their memory but people that have long ago passed away um and you know the whole landscape changing around, the usage though of that point in Redfern has stayed the same. And what happens when that vantage point, this place of mass convergence and conversation and, and black thought and protecting you know, what we have, what happens when that disappears?
1: Mm. You've started a journey that we are now going to be taking you on for the next 10 episodes Mm -hmm. here every Friday at Radio Skid Row 88.9, 12 to 2. You've been listening to Survival Guide.